I knew somehow without knowing what I would do next. Is that often how you sense an answer? Yes, and I hate it. Um, <laughs> I am very much a planner. I want to know where I'm going and what I'm doing, so I've always had a plan. That's not very mystical. <laughs> no. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith here in the back courtyard of the Beacon Hill Friends House in Boston on the historic Beacon Hill in a place that I think you're going to find to be fascinating because it's communal living. I should start off by talking to the executive director of the Beacon Hill Friends House since June 2017. This is Nils Klinkenberg. Nils, thank you for speaking with me. Good afternoon. So here's a a point of confusion sometimes. What is a Quaker and what is a Shaker? How are they Ah. different? (laughs) Yes, they are basically completely different. I mean, there's a rhyming in the name there and there's confusion. Shakers are or were a religious tradition, one of the hallmarks of which, most notably, was that they did not procreate themselves. Perhaps not surprisingly, over time, this uh, led to a dwindling of numbers. The Quakers, in contrast, do procreate and have children. People find their way to the Religious Society of Friends, which is the formal name of Quakers as well. So Quakerism is a religious movement founded in the 1600s in England. Um, there was the, you know, the Protestant Reformation had happened, and there's, in England there was lots of stuff with the monarchy going on too. So it was a time of much religious activity and a movement of people emerged. There are lots of ways to describe, and and people may have different answers to what Quakerism is, since one hallmark is there is no explicit dogma or creed. So you will get different answers from each person you ask. But the way I talk about it, um, in my understanding, Quakerism is largely centered around this core idea that there is that of God in every person, Mm. in every single person, and that each person can listen to and engage with and tap into that spark of divinity within themselves. And then a movement emerge, or, you know, if you believe this, then supported in community, striving to live into, as if this really were true, with radical and deep integrity, living into that there is a spark of divinity, there is that of God in every single person, the inner light, people use different terms for this. It turns out that's hard. Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) um, And of course, Quakers don't have monopoly on any of these ideas, but the particular arrangement and combination of theological beliefs and practices and all that, that I'm excited to talk with you about today, and we'll explore a bit more, I'm sure, that is Quakerism. It's not always easy. In fact, I would say it's usually not easy, but for me, Quakerism is about figuring out how and striving continually to live into this idea and acting like it really is true that there is that of God in every person. I'm also speaking with Jennifer Higgins Newman. Jen is the program director since January 2020, but has been part of this community here since 2017 as the clerk of the Quaker Learning Committee. You have a master's in theological studies from Vanderbilt Divinity School. I do. That makes me wonder what your religious background is, how you came up, and then how you made the Quaker connection. Oh boy, I was raised in the East Bay area of California, non-denominational evangelical Christians. My parents, my father grew up nominally Christian. I think they attended a Lutheran church. Uh, My mother was raised Catholic, became Lutheran in the late 60s as a teenager um, and converted to evangelical Christianity in college. 
because I was raised evangelical, so I had a really deep connection with, with God. I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior when I was six years old. Religion has always played a really important part in my life, but I was also always questioning, and I had a much more mystical experience with God and personal relationship with God than many of my sort of youth group peers did. I related to God much more through music, so I was a worship leader when I was in high school. But I was always sort of searching for answers to my questions that others couldn't really give me. I went to George Fox University in Portland, Oregon, or outside of Portland, Oregon, and that's where I found Quakerism. And he is one of the founders. Yes, George Fox is one of the founders in 1600s England. The university was named after George Fox a little bit later. So there are several different sort of movements of Quakers and different kinds of Quakers around the country. So the Quakers that are outside of Portland, Oregon, that are affiliated with George Fox University are evangelical Quakers. So they were both influenced by evangelicalism, and they have the majority of which are called programmed meetings. So they it looks a lot more like the kind of community church that I grew up in. So there's music and there's a message that is often prepared ahead of time. There are pastors that shepherd the meetings, which is very different from the way that Quakerism looks out here. But there's also this focus on that connection to God within you. What Quakers out there would call the light of Christ within that is found through contemplative waiting worship. So that practice of waiting worship is what's sort of constant across most forms of Quakerism. And I really was drawn to that when I was at university. I had a lot of questions and a lot of disagreement with the theology that I grew up with, things that I consider now to be death-dealing theologies. I'm a pretty liberal and left political person. I disagreed vehemently with the way that I was raised in purity culture. So I guess we're talking about sex here with the Shakers and procreation and Quakerism, but that you know, my worth as a woman was to be a good biblical woman, to be the Proverbs 31 woman, to be abstinent until marriage, that you know, sex was a high priority. My, my sexual purity was a sign of my worth and my worth with God. I disagreed with- Which would also mean you could lose your worth. Yes, exactly. God. Lots of metaphors like a broken teacup could never be the same or a chewed up piece of bubble gum or a rose without any of its petals. That's unfortunately very widespread. Yes, very. And I questioned that a lot growing up, but never received answers that I felt like really engaged with my questions. It's like, you just need to believe this or you're out. Very rigid boundary creation within the evangelical movement of who's in and who's out that I just disagreed with. I also disagreed with the way that the theology around sexual orientation and gender identity that my upbringing had. Lots of who's in and who's out and who can feel the love of God and who isn't and who's unauthentic, like who's experiencing an authentic expression of what God's love and revealing God to us, whose ministry is valued and whose isn't, women being able to preach or not. Yeah. So when I found Quakerism, there was a lot there that I really resonated with, so like contemplative worship, the listening to our inner teacher and inner guide, the way that can, God speaks Can I to, ask about that? You yeah. mentioned having a somewhat more mystical Yes. relationship with God. That's what you're talking about right yes. now. How did you feel like you, that you made that connection? Or what was <laughs> that experience, if you can tell yeah, me? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I grew up in evangelicalism, I was encouraged to pray and talk to God all the time. And I really believed that as a small child. So I was six years old at some vacation Bible school and I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I didn't really know what that meant, but I did know that I would pray and would talk about how things were going and sort of 
in my days and work things out. And I really felt this like peace and embodied presence of God in my physical being. When I was in college, so my undergraduate degree was in philosophy and political science. And in my philosophy class, taught by a Quaker named Phil Smith on a philosophy of religion, talked about like different ways of knowing God mm. and different Christian perspectives. In that particular class, it was Christian perspectives on how we can have knowledge of God and how we can rely on that. Because it's a question within philosophy of asking like, okay, well, how do you know that God is real or that God is true? I wrote a paper there that really helped me work out for me what I meant by having these mystical experiences with God. And it was a combination of reading Simone Weil, who has this very, she's a you know, more modern Christian mystic that has these very embodied experiences of God being with her in the same way that like Julian of Norwich has had these, is these women mystical thinkers and writers. And I combined that with the theories of perspectival knowledge. So the way that like knowledge can be felt in the body and that, that feeling in the body is real knowledge that we need to understand and can hold as like equally with derived knowledge yeah and that that's something that we need that human beings know things from embodied experience and that that's important too so are there certain things or certain times when you really feel that connection more than others what connects you to the divine like that the moments before i became a quaker that i felt these things were when i was in quiet prayer literally i remember being a small child like praying, you know, as I was taught to pray with my hands, <laughs> hands in, prayer in prayer position, kneeling down by my bedside, not really knowing what to say, but doing it on my own and figuring out what that relationship would be. And then when I was playing music, I really tuned out. Evangelicals have a way of making music very performative. We definitely did that too. And it was up on stage playing and singing, but that I sort of tuned out everything else and it just became a relationship between me and, and God there, that I was singing to this thing, and I can feel it sort of in my body, the sensation. And I feel that way in waiting worship too. It's a practice and it's hard, being in silence for an hour, which is how friends practice out here. Let's describe this just a little bit. Because yeah. of COVID-19, unfortunately, I was not able to come to a service Sunday here, but explain what that waiting is in a meeting. Quakers call this expectant worship. So you believe that there is God or divine or spirit or light or whatever language you might put to that within you and that there's an inner teacher that if you sit in stillness and really listen and work in a practice whatever that is for you of trying to listen for that that you might hear God or hear that voice and that voice might also call you to do something it might call you to give a message in meeting it might call you to take some action. It might call you down a particular path of life to a particular job or vocation to a place. It might call you to travel or be in ministry. But it's obviously something you could do on your own, but there's something gained from doing it in community. Yeah. The Bible says where one or more are gathered, Christ is present. And I think for me, as a Christian Quaker, I believe that. So when I'm in community with other people, there's this difference in the way the space is created and the way I show up there and in the way that I understand God to be present. I believe that God is present with us at all times. You know, it's not just when I'm gathered with other people, but that there is something unique about the way it feels to be in community with others and asking after God and waiting for and, and listening for that inner teacher. 
Nils, was this sort of waiting worship, was that similar to the way you grew up in the Framingham Friends Meeting? And where is that located? Yes, it was. Framingham is just about 45-minute drive west of here. We're right in downtown Boston here. As Jen said, this form of Quaker worship, which we sometimes call unprogrammed, in contrast to the programmed, you know, planned ahead. So there's uh, no planned sermon or musical numbers? no planned numbers. sermon. In fact, there's no minister in the traditional sense of a person in the front of the room, although technically, and this is partially to be clever but also true, rather than saying there's no minister, it's that no one is not a minister. Ah. I once heard someone say that rather than abolishing the ministry, the Quakers abolished the laity. <laughs> um, and that, But if you think about it, this, this makes sense in alignment with this idea that there is that of God in everyone, which means that anyone could at any point in time have that spark of insight, of connection, of something to share that is divinely inspired, or to put other ways, that, like, that is the thing that people in the group need to hear, which influences the way that, just to take a brief detour onto this, the way that Quakers have traditionally made decisions in groups as well, as congregations. Again, traditionally, in the early Quaker movement and in the unprogrammed tradition that we are in, there is no minister or congregational leader, no single person. I'm not the minister of Beacon Hill Friends meeting. In fact, the meeting is organizationally separate from the Friends House. And even in the Friends House, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, we're kind of a, a funny hybrid model where we have paid staff, and I am the executive director. I'm Jen's supervisor in that sense, and I report to a board. But there are also a lot of decisions that we make collaboratively and in community. And that is true in Quaker meetings. It's true at Beacon Hill Friends meeting here, and it was true in my home meeting of Framingham as well. So I grew up attending Framingham Friends meeting. My mom had grown up Quaker. My dad grew up Catholic. My mom's parents had found Quakerism outside of Philadelphia and uh, raised their daughters Quaker. And so uh, my parents decided to raise my sister and I attending Quaker meeting. Do you remember as a child in those meetings, most children believe there's a God if their parents say so. Did you have a time where you thought, actually, I need to figure this out for myself? Or was that just always present in growing up that way? Honestly, and in hindsight, it feels almost oddly, God wasn't talked about all that much growing up, I think, in my household and in my meeting. Some, yes, and I was very active starting at midway through elementary school in the Quaker youth group within the New England region of the six states of New England. Organizationally, there's a Quaker entity, New England Yearly Meeting, it's the name of the organization and of the meeting itself that encompasses all the New England states. And so New England Yearly Meeting has some really fantastic youth programs that were so nourishing for me and a big part of my religious and spiritual education, actually, as well. Since my meeting was fairly small, there were a few other kids my age, but through these weekend retreats was where I really got to tap into to meeting other Quakers my age and other Quaker adults who weren't just, you know, like my parents sort of happened into it. Yeah, this works for me. Their particular styles are not that we were talking about God every day at the dinner table, but through the youth workers at these retreats, I was exposed to more content like that and more discussions and all that. Quakers also tend to talk about, in my experience, especially in the this in our culture is considered progressive or liberal thinking, we aren't just talking about God, we're talking about testimonies and sort of what this recognition of there is that of God in every person, what does that lead you to do? And so Quakers have traditionally had a big focus, or we sometimes use the word a testimony of peace and working for non, yeah. nonviolence. And so a lot of what I remember from growing up was a focus on those values and not just what you should believe, because again, there's not one should, but let's explore what we believe and let's talk about how do we act in the world given these beliefs or given these collections of beliefs. Because again, even though 
for individual Quakers, their theology varies, their worldview varies. There are these collections of values, of testimonies, things that Quakers have continually affirmed over time of, oh yeah, you know, we still think this is true. Oh, you other Quakers, you think this is true. Oh, and we can see how this stems from honoring the divinity of every person. How could we support the death penalty and ending a person's life if there's part of God in them? How could we not try and live with integrity or to try and live more simply and get rid of some of these trappings that get in the way of us living lives of more simple service and, and connection? So to get back to your original question of were there moments or that, um, that I recall, I don't remember thinking all that much about what do I really believe and scrutinizing my beliefs. Um, just sort of there was a background of, yep, these things are here. We talk about them occasionally. I like my friends and I get to see my <laughs> friends at Quaker retreats, which I know is not unique to Quakerism as well. Of like uh, church is as much about, I mean, it is church is about people as well as, yes. uh, as well as whatever is written in a book or, or what we're reading or hearing. And I think it wasn't until high school, it was maybe my junior year in high school that I started, that I remember starting to think a little bit more deeply about, oh, huh, what do I actually believe? And I'd heard Quakers talk through my whole life of using the language of the seeker sometimes. Yeah. And uh, again, not unique to Quakerism, but I think something that, something that I've heard a lot over the years among Quakers is we each have our own path through life. And again, if there's not one right answer, there's not, this is the book that tells us what to believe, or this is the only source of wisdom and truth. There are a lot of different paths that may be right for a person. That's one thing that we at the Friends House try to do as well, actually, with, we have 21 residents here. It's a big old two mansions combined in the 1920s. They were built in the early 1800s. So we have 20 people living here at a time, approximately. And most are not Quakers. In fact, only a handful at any given time, in the times that, that I've been here, have been friends. And by the way, we use the term Quaker and friend interchangeably. Neither is more correct than other, I mean, ask an individual. Maybe they prefer to be called a friend or a Quaker. So what draws people to come and want to be part of this can I call it an experiment in communal living, learning yeah. how to live together? Yeah. It varies some. And I might laugh now if, um, that so many answers to questions about Quakerism start with, well, it varies. <laughs> so it's almost a joke among Quakers that it depends. But for the Friends House, I can speak with a little more authority. It does vary. But people come here. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful old house, so centrally located in downtown Boston. And it's affordable. People pay rent, but way under market rate for this neighborhood. That's not the only reason people come here, though. Even if you liked all that and you also identify as, yeah, I want to live in a co-op of some kind or in cooperative community, there's still a bit more about the Friends House. That one way I've come to think about this institution, which has been around since 1957, as Jen mentioned, so I've been here three of its 63 years <laughs> as an organization, but it's a place for people to come to grow and to deepen and to do that in different ways. And that can be spiritually, that can be personally, that can be in community and through other, other aspects of their life for which individual words aren't perfect, which is true for so much of faith and, and, mm. um, and spiritual matters as well. I like to think that if we're doing our job well, that's true whether we're talking about a resident moving in here for up to four years. And we do have a limit of four years of residency. People have to move on and make space for others to get to experience this. But I think ideally it's it's hopefully even true for someone coming to a one and a half hour evening workshop or to, to stay in one of our two overnight guest rooms, which you were going to do and we were so excited <laughs> to have you, but we had to can cancel that. I hope you'll come back when another, COVID is all over. Another year, another year. 
By the way, would you give the website where people can even see some of these weekly activities and take part online? Yes, our website is www.bhfh.org. That's Beacon Hill Friends House. You can also find us on Facebook. And Jen does a fantastic job. Multiple staff work on our website. We have four staff here. But Jen has been really doing a tremendous job, especially during the pandemic here, of developing a lot of online programming and virtual content and keeping our website fresh and updated. So there should be lots of interesting stuff there for people to see. Good. Jen, before I talk to you about communal living and being an online community here. What took you to study theological studies? It's a great question. I didn't think I would. I was sitting in the College of Christian Studies department office where I was a teaching assistant at George Fox University. It was like the beginning of my senior year of college and I was talking to our office administrator about theology stuff and I was just excited about it. And a professor named Paul Anderson I don't think he even knows how profoundly this impacted me, but he walked into the office and said, you should apply to divinity school. I was in the middle of studying for the LSAT, thinking I'd be a lawyer. I was a debater. I was a graduate debate coach at Vanderbilt while I was there studying theology. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I'll apply to law school and then why not? I'll apply to some divinity schools. And another professor of mine had gone to Vanderbilt and she said, if you're looking at divinity schools, you should, you should really look at Vanderbilt. I think they combine sort of the kind of theology you're looking for, the rigorous study of theology that you're looking for with social action and the call. For me, firmly believe, you know, faith without works is, is dead and that we're called to out of faith to act. And so I've been involved in both the sort of contemplative study of things and political action. And Vanderbilt was a place that I could combine both of those things well. So I applied to law school, got in some places, and applied to Vanderbilt and got in, and they flew me out to visit there, and it just felt right. In Quakerism, there's this term, a way opens, a way will open. Like, if it's the path that you're meant to take, sometimes you feel very strongly that the headwinds are there, that I need to do this thing, and other times way opens, and God puts the path there for you, and it might not be clear to you where you're headed, And looking back, it might seem so clear, like, oh yeah, of course I did this thing. And that's sort of how I felt in the moment. Like, I got into this place, it just felt right, and I knew somehow without knowing what I would do next. Is that often how you sense an answer to move forward? Yes, and I hate it. Um, (laughs) I am very much a planner. I want to know where I'm going and what I'm doing, so I've always had a plan. That's not very mystical. (laughs) No. And somehow yet, God has called me to do things that I never thought I would do. That's how I went to George Fox University. I did not know what Quakers were. I was applying to the universities in California and applied to some Christian colleges and went to George Fox and it just felt right. And it was then it was clear to me in a way that other things hadn't been, that it felt hard. And so somehow, despite all of my planning, God tells me, this is what you will do now. I'm like, okay. But, but he didn't make you. You sensed that open door and decided to walk through. Yes. Yeah, well, there's faith. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me ask you about combining the academic and the philosophy of theology and all of that with coming to a place like Beacon Hill Friends House. Without naming names, are there some difficult things? It seems like there would be with any 20 people to living together, to sharing meals together, to all of that. Are there any particular things that are the most challenging? Yeah. The first thing that comes to my mind is like, talk about living into your theology of grace and mercy, that I am called 
very clearly daily to show myself grace and others grace mm. and to be gentle and humble. I did not read the verse in, I forget what part of the Bible it is. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not yes. boast at my wedding. But that almost, like being called to, as a Quaker and a Christian, I believe I'm called to love. And here I am constantly, every day, learning to live into that. To have patience when I don't feel like it, when the dishwasher hasn't been emptied and I want it to be. <laughs> or when the meeting's not going, you know, the decisions aren't going fast enough for me when I want to make them. Living through crisis together and each person experiencing their own unique reaction to what is going on in the world and being a staff person here and trying to help call us into unity despite that difference. You know, one of the, my favorite words I learned in divinity school was, was multiplicity and how to have a theology of multiplicity, meaning that we all might have, you know, there's not one right way of doing things. And I very much believe that, that there's no one right theology, but rather there's a multiplicity of ways that God calls us to be and, and know in the world, and that I get to learn what those differences are through encountering difference, through working with other people. And here is an opportunity for me to encounter difference every day and communicate together and, and work together to embody love and, and grace. I mean, that seems like the challenge of anyone who goes to a Sunday or some sort of Sabbath worship, whenever their Sabbath is, is not to just leave that at the door when they head out into the rest of their week. And you guys are living in the middle of that, have chosen to live in the middle of that opportunity. Yeah. We have chosen to live in the middle of that opportunity, I agree. And I think that, for me, that resonates with the word intentional. We often talk about the Friends House as an intentional community. We're not 20 people who happen to live in a big house together, or even people who happen to have decided to, but there's this intentionality of, I'm choosing to be in community and to sign up to live in a house where I have more obligations than I would in some group living situations. But I don't think that it's necessarily unique to the friend's house either. There is the intentionality there and perhaps we are more practiced at we hold up the mirror and we talk to ourselves about that. We talk about it a little bit more, but I almost want to push it back to like, anyone can do this wherever they live. I, but I really do think that is true. Anyone who interacts with people. Anyone and, you know, I maybe would turn it back over to the more mystical of the two of us to answer the question of how one would do it on one's own. But, but I really do think that that is part of, I mean, Quakers have always been about community from the start. If you believe that there is that of God in every person and you're listening to that still small voice inside of you, it's possible for someone to say, I have the voice of God. And so whatever I say is right. And to run off into the deep end, as we might say. So, well, who's to say? Like, can you tell me that I'm wrong if I say, no, 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 I have the voice of God in me. I have that of God in me. I have part of God in me. So what is the answer to that? What Quakers have always done is to temper that individual leading with community and to discern things in community and to build relationship and deep trusting and striving again. And I use the word striving like I did at the beginning because I don't think any of us can claim to always be there. It's about humility and it's about this continual effort and recentering ourselves back to that when we fall out or when we fall away. But striving to live into beloved community with each other, uh, to making that effort. And I think we're really lucky to have the tradition of the Beacon Hill Friends House here, that this institution exists and it calls us to that and the tradition of Quakerism. But I do think it's open to people anywhere, no matter their faith, tradition or spiritual or non-spiritual worldview. And we do have a broad range of 
religions and spiritualities and lack thereof here, so the residents. you could be Quaker and not define yourself as Christian, for instance. Yes, and in fact, there are plenty of Quakers. I mean, most Quakers around the world do identify as Christian, but there are plenty that don't. And there are even Quakers who don't identify as believing in God in the traditional sense. But there, again, defining God is... I'm sure the subject of its own podcast itself, so we could get in, spend many episodes on that itself. But along with that, you have a background in sustainability, sustainable living yep. as well. And so uh, whether that's on a larger scale or here as a community, it seems that some sort of activism or improvement in the world is sort of a telltale sign of dedicated Quakers. I think that's fair to say, yeah. I think Quakers throughout history have been associated with a number of different causes for justice of the abolition movement and one that people often bring up and comes readily to mind, um, women's suffrage in the United States and otherwise. So that's the right to vote for women. And it is also important for many friends today, especially conversations that we have in the Quaker world all the time are about even while we honor those traditions and that legacy of those friends who took hard stances and stood up for justice, that we also not allow ourselves to be fooled into thinking that all Quakers have done great things and so then we can rest on their laurels. Mm. Either of those things I think would be would not be truth and Quakers are about seeking truth. And there are things that Quakers have done over time, not just individuals, but in their meetings as Quakers that now we are ashamed of and are not working for justice. Quakers founded a string of boarding schools that took indigenous children in the United States away from their families. Quakers accidentally at maybe, but basically invented solitary confinement. There was a prison in upstate New York run mm. by Quakers, basically. It seems odd now, but um, bear with me there. And um, they had this idea of, well, what if we separated prisoners so that they could be in their, each one in their own cell with just a small window up above and the Bible, and they can just repent. Won't that be good for them? And that's solitary confinement. So to me, that speaks to the importance of, again, of humility, and of a phrase that I don't think we've said today yet, but that Quakers often turn to and talk about is continuing revelation. That we may think we have it all figured out now. We may think we're at the end of history. And people throughout history have tended to think that, I think. That once we've discovered a thing or we have this book, it says the truth. We have this leader. He or she speaks the truth. And often it's been he. But continuing revelation is this idea of, for me, it's humility that we may not know all the answers and we probably don't. So we should be really cautious with saying too stridently that we have the right answers, especially if we're saying then that someone else doesn't. Yeah, thank you very much. Part of your commitment, and I think this show's commitment, is you were both here with spouses or partners and Nils, you have a little boy. Has that been an added challenge or did spouses come into this knowing this was part of the program of, of their relationship with you? My spouse was the one who found this house and community first. Ah. We moved to Boston because he was also getting a theology degree at BU School of Theology. My spouse Ryan also went to George Fox University. Ryan became Quaker in Eugene, Oregon during college as well and was looking for Quakers in Boston when he was going to seminary here and we were still dating and we were long distance when I was at Vanderbilt. And so Ryan very much knew going in <laughs> what we were getting ourselves into. We've really appreciated being married and in community in part because we have other, especially in this time, we have other people to talk to, but sort of our, our marriage is 
part of the community and the community is part of our marriage. It's like we're all, you know, not in a weird way. Um, <laughs> maybe edit that out. I don't know. We, we get you. We get you. <laughs> but, um, you know, we can notice things about each other. and. I would like, just be glad to have someone else that it's possible that they didn't take out the trash rather yes. than for sure it's me because that's, there's so many of us. That's part of the benefit, right. <laughs> and I can see things about the way my spouse makes friendships and interacts with people in a way that I wouldn't otherwise be able to, that I get to be a part of community and see him in, in different ways and see him show up as a leader and see him you know, show up for other people in ways I just wouldn't get to bear witness to if I weren't here. We've only been married for three years. We got married right before we moved to Boston. So this has been a really interesting experiment with being so newly married. I guess Nils was also newly married here. <laughs> um, but having this be a defining factor of the early years of our, of our marriage, we probably won't live in community like this for the rest of our marriage. I have no idea. But yeah, that we can learn and grow and grow in the ways that we communicate with other people and not just have the other person be the only party to that growth. Yeah. So my story is a little different in that I grew up Quaker, as mentioned, and my then girlfriend, now wife, and I were living in Washington, D.C., and we'd talked about moving back to Massachusetts eventually. She's from rural Nevada. Anyway, we weren't going to move back there. She loves her upbringing, but we were going to move to Massachusetts at some point. And then, like often happens in life, talk about way will open, this opportunity kind of fell into my lap to apply for this job. I was working as a manager at an environmental consulting firm in Washington, D.C. And at first, when my predecessor, actually, who had been a friend of mine through New England Quaker Connections, Holly, sent me the job description, I thought, this can't be for me. I'm, I'm not an executive director. Then I read through because, and this was a good example of the power of a nudge or of a leading even, because it was from someone I trusted and I had faith to say, okay, well, Holly, she's not crazy. In fact, she's really wise, so I'll just look. But then I read through the description with the lens of, hey, maybe this is for me, not just here's some job posting that immediately I don't see myself in. And when I looked through it that way, things jumped out. Living in intentional community. I had done that before, after college, in a co-op some friends had started. The social justice focus, the back in Massachusetts, the focus on leadership and personal development, which are other strong interests of mine and things I've been involved with. And must supervise two staff. And I thought, well, wait, that's what I'm doing now. So it was like, wait a minute, I, I might actually be qualified for this sort of thing. And my dear spouse was so supportive when I showed her the description, she said, oh, shoot, you have to apply. Even though it was, again, about a year before we thought that we might be moving up here. So I moved up. I ended up getting the job. I moved up, and she moved up nine or ten months later. And Casey, my spouse, is not a Quaker. We're very values-aligned, but she didn't grow up in that tradition. So she was somewhat skeptical, but more reassured. And I think her experience actually parallels plenty of people who live in the house. Again, some are Quaker, some have experiences Quakers, but for many people, this is their first experience with Quakerism. Maybe they've heard of, you know, they know about it. Maybe they just have seen a Quaker Oats box and, oh, they don't all dress like that. Okay. I was even going to try and not bring up the Quaker Oats <laughs> well, thing. I did it for you. <laughs> um, so the Quaker Oats box guy, just while we're on that topic, he dresses in what to an untrained eye might look like Amish or some Mennonite. And in fact, some Quakers did used to dress that way. And a very few still do. It was a, an aspect of simplicity and of not wearing dyed fabrics and all that. But this is radio, not video, but um, I'm wearing a blue t-shirt and Jenna's wearing color as well. 
Can you give me just a short paragraph about what you're doing as an online outreach now that in-person worship is not currently available here? Yeah. So, I mean, Beacon Hill Friends Meeting has its own online meeting for worship. And so they're running that. Mm. Um, Like Neil said, we're institutionally separate from the meeting, although I am a member of that meeting. There are two programs that come to mind that your listeners might be interested in. The first is that I run a simple meditation practice every morning, Monday through Friday. It's a 15 minute practice to help alleviate stress. It's a silent meditation practice that I run. It's free. You can just hop on. The information's on our website. And the second is our program, Midweek Experiments in Faithfulness. That is a one-hour weekly facilitated spiritual practice with a Quaker flavor and an experimental ethos. That means is that we have facilitators who are Quaker or understand Quakerism and the contemplative nature of our spiritual practices. We invite them to share with us a spiritual practice that they engage in. They range from guided meditations to how to notice the ways that oppression and patterns of that show up in your life. I saw one about writing. Yeah, those practices are live in person for one hour weekly on Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Those are also free and open to the public. And I also record these practices and post a much shorter version, 15 to 20 minutes online. That's a portion of the practice. That website is bhfh.org slash midweek. You can also find it on our main website page. Our time is short, but before final questions, thank you both for being willing to do this. And for those of you listening, I mean, it's just really not possible to do a normal interview these days in person, but you've kindly consented to meet here in the courtyard. An airplane has flown over or two. Uh, There's construction going on, but I really appreciate the chance to be out in this lovely brick courtyard with trees all around us. I want to maybe have a final question, which would be either, what should I ask you that I don't know to ask you? Or what is most meaningful to you or touching to you about being Quaker or being part of this community? What is most touching to me about being part of the Quaker community, being Quaker, and and then by extension getting to be part of the Friends House and this work here that I'm so lucky to get to do, is that I believe in Quakerism has some pieces that are just really awesome and that I want to be spread more widely which sounds, everyone thinks their ideas should be spread widely, maybe. But the world needs so much right now in order to, I mean, you mentioned my sustainability background, and I approach that not as just another word for the environment or for ecology, but there are things that we, as a society, as a civilization even, are doing now that we cannot sustain indefinitely into the future. And to use a phrase that Quakers sometimes use, I carry a concern Hmm. for that, a very deep concern. And some of that is ecological, and some of that is the way we relate to each other. Quakerism, for all of its silliness, every religion has things that are silly, and the people in the next pew over, the next community, bother you sometimes, and your roommate or your neighbor down the hall at the friend's house here does annoying things. But there are some things that are so powerful that what if more people in the world, no matter their religious identity, acted more as if there was such inherent dignity and worth in other people, not just in the people they know, but in the strangers out there and people of groups that they disagree with. What if we were to act such that there is that of God in those people, that we care about them so much, even if you don't believe in God at all and you have a very grounded worldview that does not involve the concept of God as we often talk about it, acting in a way that you understand what the word God means to some people, that there is that level of inherent worth and dignity and importance and beauty in each other individual, 
and then really radically leaning into integrity with that idea, it's impossible not to change your life and do things differently. Mm. And I think if more people did that, the world would be better off. And there are tools and ideas of Quakerism that are relevant to people far beyond Quakerism. And that's part of what we're doing at the Friends House, is introducing tools and concepts in an accessible, approachable, non-threatening way to residents and others. And I'm excited that I get to be a part of that. That's great. I was thinking of something completely different than what Nils was talking about. But I agree with a lot of what he's saying. The one thing I'm thinking about is the importance of silence and the way that the tradition I grew up in was very noisy. Mm. Lots of music, lots of preaching, lots of memorizing Bible verses. And it has been so radically different for me to have a spirituality now focused on being silent and that that's not inherently a problem that thinking or waiting or thinking about Quakers have a practice of queries or questions. What is God trying to reveal to me now? Taking a moment I, in, in this job and in this house, silence is a ritual and, and pervades a lot of the things that we do together. We take silence before dinner. It's just normal. It's not just a sort of grave thing that we do or a thing that accompanies sort of mourning or loss, but a thing we use to celebrate or to hold. I think that's really a really important spiritual practice that Quakerism offers or a tool, as Nil said, of Quakerism and that we can use a lot more of the call not just to someone says something to you and you must respond, but actually the call to to not, to actively listen, the call to then explore silence, to be comforted by it and to help us then be open. I think the silence for me helps me soften and helps me open to that continuing revelation or to how I might see differently, to how I might be wrong and to be okay with that. And so as I think about, yeah, my my background and all of the things that we've talked about today, that the actual practice of Quaker worship and the way that it is a spiritual practice, not just in our meeting for worship, but in our daily lives. And that's just one of many spiritual practices that Quakers can offer. That one's really important to me and it means a lot to me. I think of the scripture, be still and know that I am God. And that's lovely that you've learned to appreciate that. I've been speaking today with Jennifer Higgins Newman, who is the program manager here with the Beacon Hill Friends House, and Nils Klinkenberg, who's the executive director of the Friends House, both of them here since 2017. Thank you both for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank Thank you. That's our time for today. Thanks to the Beacon Hill Friends House in Boston, Massachusetts, Jennifer Higgins Newman, program director, and Nils Klinkenberg, Executive Director, for generously sharing their stories and their faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. All of our episodes are online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here, In Good Faith.